We are continuing on this evening, this afternoon, in our series of Jesus I Am statements from the Gospel of John. And uh, what a joy this series has already been, a challenge to my own heart. Uh, This week we're looking at John chapter 11 and Jesus' statement that I am the resurrection and the life. Now before we read uh, the passage, I want to give you kind of the main thought of, of where we're headed in the Word today. And the main thought is based on a premise. And that premise is that you and I are meant to spend our lives, every bit of our lives, about the task of making much of the glory of God. Stand here. feels better. Uh, that is meant to be our purpose, to make much of the glory of God. And if that's how we spend our lives, here's the thing we need to know. The pursuit of making much of the glory of God with our lives will be costly, it will be painful, but it will also be completely full of joy because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 11, and we'll read the bulk of this chapter together. It uh, just kind of is the next step after Andrew's passage from last week. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. The words will be on the screen right behind me. So John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved uh, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, Just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Aren't there twelve hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble, because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, If he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly. I love how he does that. He has to do that to me sometimes too. Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I 
am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. Thanks be to God for his word. It is living and active. The pursuit of making much of the glory of God will be costly. It will be painful, but also completely full of joy because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In the mid-1640s, a group of Scottish theologians and English theologians came together to to complete the Reformation in England as it had been in Scotland. Uh, They they wanted to complete it in a more thorough way. And and as they collaborated together, they put out different things and and different documents and uh, statements of faith. And one of the things that came out of this was a, a document that was used, designed to disciple children called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it was a series of questions and answers. And, and the very first question, the way this Shorter Catechism begins is with this question. What is the chief end of man? To which the answer resounds, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, the purpose of our lives on this earth is to live in such a way that God is glorified. But that last phrase, it takes it even a bit further. Not only do we live to bring glory to God, but we live with the understanding that nothing else in this world, nothing else in this world will satisfy our hearts like growing closer in relationship with God. We find delight 
in the pursuit of knowing God and all that he does. Therefore, we seek to be satisfied in nothing else but in knowing Christ more and more and more. John Piper has famously written and coined this phrase, summarizing that exact thought, that question, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he's gone on to kind of unpack that a bit more. And I I love this quote from him, that God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So it's not enough that we see his glory, but that we rejoice in his glory as we see it, as we understand it. That our lives are meant to center around the pursuit of the glory of God. And it's that pursuit that I'm talking about today when I say it will be costly. That it will be painful, but it will be full of joy. This passage we're looking at today isn't, it's not a set of teachings It's not a statement of instructions. It's not a list of rules. It's a narrative of a window of time in Jesus' life, as well as this family's life. And we often read the stories of Jesus, and we we tend to forget that they aren't just stories. Uh, In our minds, we understand that Jesus was real. He lived, and he he had a life like we have, but... But there is often this disconnect in our hearts from that truth really, really landing. And we just read a story of incredible loss and incredible heartache. And it wasn't just loss for strangers that Jesus meets, but, but loss and heartache have struck at the core of Jesus' circle of friends. Uh, this isn't like strangers come to him and, and he's kind of disconnected. No, this is, these are people that he knows very well. And every single one of them have felt the pain of what's just happened. So that phrase, I am the resurrection and the life, it, it, could be, it could be easily made into this kind of cold propositional truth that we quote. But I just want to remind all of us today that that comes in the context of pain. It comes in the context of absolute heartbreak. In a real life, raw, gritty moment in Jesus' life, in Mary's life, in Martha's life, and in the lives of many who had gathered to mourn the loss of Lazarus. And if we miss that today, the power of these words will be diminished a bit, meaning we won't fully understand what Jesus was trying to communicate. So it's from that place, that context today, that really I have, I have two points. That's, that's all, not three, four, or five, just, just two points today. Uh, one is that the cost, the cost of following the path of making much of the glory of God. Then secondly, we're going to look at Jesus being the resurrection of the life is the heart, the root of our joy as Christians. So let's tackle that first one. Pursuing the magnification of the glory of God, making much of the glory of God will be costly. It will be a costly path to follow. There really is no other way around this truth. I I wish that this were a happier, easier, fluffier thing. It would would be more comfortable if this were easier. Uh, I wish this weren't, in my own life, this weren't a struggle, that it weren't, it, it was just smooth and easy without any kind of friction that you could just like on ice, just skate and go and, and there'd be no, nothing slowing you down. Uh, and in pop culture, it feels like over the last few decades, especially Christian pop culture, there's been like this growing sentiment that if you just believe hard enough in Christ, 
and put your faith in him that all your problems are gone. We minimize sin and we talk about the love of God and in this kind of ethereal way. And there really is no consequences of sin because of the love of God. And, and, and you have that ranging all the way to that if you just believe hard enough or claim hard enough that God will give you material blessings and, and he will give you, that's the sign of his blessing to you is monetary wealth and things. And you can have a prosperous life and, and, uh, and all of that re- reflects your spiritual health. And the only problem with all of those things is if we honestly read the Bible, honestly read the Bible, None of that is in the Bible. It's actually contrary to what the Scripture says. Repeatedly, Jesus tells his followers, they're about to face trouble. Suffering is coming upon you. Persecution is coming upon you. He he tells them, take comfort in this, that in those days, it'll be given to you what to say when you stand before those who are judging you and those who are uh, accusing you. For the first couple of centuries that the church existed, it flourished and thrived and grew. But it grew because it was in the context of persecution. Throughout history, there have been moments where the church has just exploded in growth, but every single time it's been in the context of persecution and suffering. And the reason I'm coming down so hard on this today is because the Christian life, the life you and I are called to live, is not focused primarily on the temporary here and now. It's focused on what's to come as we live out life in this broken world, firmly fixing our hearts and our minds on what's ahead of us. It's about understanding that knowing Christ, communing with God through the work of Christ, is the truest treasure of this life. It's what's most valuable. And I can guarantee you that the people in our passage knew that. So often we read this story and we focus on the end, the powerful moment of of Jesus shouting and Lazarus I don't know, did he hop out in grave clothes, kind of mummified? Or I don't know how that happened. You know, we, we, we think about the happy ending of everyone rejoicing and people believing. And wow, Jesus actually did this amazing thing. And we tend to gloss over the friction that happened before that. We, we gloss over the, the setup of the story of, of Jesus waiting, the, the loss of a friend and a brother. But consider this. In our passage, the disciples, they're hesitant. Remember this in the very beginning. They're hesitant to go back to Judea. In verse 8, this is what they say. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you. You're going to go back there again? And eight verses later, good old Thomas, Jesus makes it clear they're going to go back. And Thomas, the, the I don't, he's loyal. Whether he's cynical or sarcastic, he's loyal. I guess we're going to all die with him too. So let's just get on with it. Let's go, go ahead and go. Um, Why is that? Why are they afraid? Why are they afraid to go back? Why did they think Jesus faced death by stoning? Well, a chapter before, this is from the middle of Andrew's sermon, his passage last week, we see that Jesus left Jerusalem to go out into the wilderness where John had been baptizing. But he did that in part because of the reception and the response of the teaching that he had been teaching. Uh, The religious leaders heard his teaching and were so enraged by his teaching that they literally wanted to pick up stones from the ground and throw at him until he died. That's what John chapter 10 tells us. Well, let's just kind of breeze through that. John 10, 27, it says this, My sheep hear my voice. This is the kind of what got Jesus in trouble with them. He says, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he really gets in trouble by this. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I 
and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him, and Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And in verse 39, then they were trying again to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So from a human perspective, it was risky for Jesus to go back to Judea, to Bethany, which was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Not only was Jesus risking his own life, but he was risking the life of his followers. He was very clearly putting all of their lives in danger. But Jesus knew also what was ahead and that he was going to be obedient to the Father because he was going to be glorified publicly in a way that he hadn't been in his whole entire ministry to that point. And that was the Father's desire, according to our passage. We see in verse 4 that Jesus clearly knew from the beginning that Lazarus was going to die and that Jesus was going to bring him back to life. And Jesus could confidently walk in obedience knowing that the Father would make a way for him to faithfully fulfill what he was called to do in Bethany. There was risk involved. But maybe you're saying, wait, didn't you just say he was confident that the Father would protect him? Yes, but he still had to trust and be obedient. Just because he knows the outcome doesn't mean he he doesn't need to be obedient in the middle of it. The risk of physical danger was there, but it wasn't the only cost for Jesus. Look at this in verses 4 and then at the very end, 33 and 35. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In verse 33, he says, when Jesus saw her crying, And the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him at, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. Yes, Jesus was confident of the ultimate outcome. But the road from where he stood to that raising of Lazarus and that ultimate outcome, what separated them was a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow. No doubt he felt the weight of causing his friends to suffer. He knew that. His waiting, his actions, he was the direct cause of heartache and suffering by his friends. Jesus knew the raising of Lazarus would cause his his friends to hurt in the short term, which no doubt caused him to suffer. Can, Can we just pause for a second on this? Because I think this is a significant moment, maybe for even for some of us in the room, that it's a safe assumption, I believe, that there may be some here today or, or some watching this evening who are either walking through difficulty or pain or or some kind of loss. And I believe this passage is worth unpacking to address that. I know we just read that, but humor me just for a moment. One more time. Look at verse four. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved, he loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Can you empathize with this family? They knew Jesus. They trusted him. They followed him. They were friends with him. It wasn't following from afar. Like they, they knew. They had spent time with him, up close, personal. They had stories of personal relationship together. 
they knew him and his compassion so well that these sisters don't even actually ask him to come back. They just send the message, the one you love is sick. He's ill. Things are not good. And they left it at that because they knew the inclination of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, that if they just tell him how how dire the situation is, he would come back, that he would heal Lazarus. Can you picture Mary and Martha just trying to comfort one another as they send the messengers off? I'm sure, no doubt, time feeling like it was standing still as they think about their brother and how ill he is. There's no doubt eager to see the Lord. I'd imagine that the moments felt like hours as they waited. Helpless, not able to do anything with their brother who's growing sicker and weaker. I can picture these two ladies anxiously waiting, walking out their door into the street, looking down the way that they know Jesus is going to come, look, not seeing anything yet, doing the maths in their head, trying to figure out, well, if the messengers left at this time, they would get to him there. How, when would he get back here? Trying to anticipate when he would get back. And then their anxiousness turned, no, no doubt, into desperation as Lazarus gets worse and worse and then finally passes. Pursuing, making much of the glory of God in your life will be costly. It will be painful at times. It will require you to sacrifice. And you may not always understand why you're walking through the things you're walking through. And here's the part where human logic and rationale and God's sovereign logic and rationale, they they don't always align. It was actually because Jesus loved this family that he chose to wait. Did you you catch that in verse 6? Verse 5, he says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard the news, he waited two more days. Think about that word friend for a moment. Have you ever had a friend that you dearly loved? I mean, a really close friend that, um, that is just in your life, part, big part of your life. You, you confide in, they confide in you. You're around for the big moments of life. And no matter what kind of distance separates you, Things don't change. It doesn't impact the relationship. No matter how long you go talking, you, you know, it really doesn't impact your relationship. The, the kind of relationship where when significant moments in your life happen, you, they come to your mind because you want to share it with them or they want to share it with you. Jesus had that too, and that, that's who these people were to him. Jesus had that kind of relationship with these, this family. And so often we fail to grasp that Jesus' life was real. It wasn't something out of a novel. It wasn't fiction. Jesus had an actual relational network of friendships, family, like you do and like I do. He was affected by their well-being. Lazarus and his sisters were some of those kind of friends. And, And the message for Jesus was, the one you love is ill. The one you love, the, 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 the word love there is, is the Greek word phileo. And it's a word for a specific kind of love that refers to a friend who's regarded with affection or, or a friend who's cherished. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus. And this is why his pursuit to glorify God is so intriguing here because this pursuit often caused friction with close relationships in his life. You see this all throughout the gospel accounts. In Mark chapter 3, Verse 20, we see this moment where Jesus' siblings have come out to meet Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, and they are physically trying to restrain him because they think he has lost his mind because he's claiming these things. He's preaching these things. He's doing these things. 
In John chapter 7, again, you see his brothers go to where he is, and they begin to mock him. They begin to mock his ministry because they didn't believe he was the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue in his own hometown in Nazareth. He's invited to read from the scroll. He picks the scroll of Isaiah, and he openly declares who he is. As he reads from Isaiah's prophecy, he says, This scripture has now been fulfilled in this place today, to which the people respond by picking up stones and trying to kill him, people that he grew up with people who knew him his whole life, who he knew his whole life, his lifelong friends respond by threatening to stone him to death for blasphemy. The path isn't just filled with difficulty for us. It's not just something that God says, do that because I promise things are going to be good. No, he knew what this is like. He knew what the difficulty is like. His whole life was filled with this as well. But the point is, as we're going to unpack in just a moment, that it's worth it. It is is worth it. Jesus knew waiting to come to Bethany would be painful. It might even make things difficult or strain the relationship for a while with this family and these sisters. But Jesus chose this family specifically to act this way and not to random strangers. There there are other places in the gospel accounts where people send messengers and Jesus immediately goes and helps them. Think of Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader, who, who goes to Jesus and says, I need you to come. Leave what you're doing. I need you to come right now. My daughter's really ill. And Jesus does. He leaves immediately and ends up bringing the girl back to life, healing, bringing healing there. Another person, I mean, these were his friends we're talking about, Mary and Martha. Another person, a Roman centurion, a sworn enemy, the conqueror, the occupier of the Jews, had a servant who was ill and sent word to Jesus requesting that he come and heal his servant. Jesus doesn't hesitate. He leaves where he is, and and if you know the story, he ends up healing the servant from afar that very hour. There are other places where Jesus moves immediately. My point is... He doesn't do that here. He waits for two days. And I think that's the case for a couple of reasons. One, he chose to give Lazarus this story. Not anybody else. He chose Lazarus to have this as his testimony, even though his his waiting meant Lazarus would die. Jesus chose for it to be Lazarus that he raised from the dead and not someone else. Think about the story that Mary was going to have and Martha was going to have and Lazarus was going to have. My brother, you're not going to believe this. My brother died, and he was dead, not for a few seconds, not for a few minutes, not for a few hours. He was dead for four days. Jesus shows up, and my brother, who's been dead for four days, comes back to life. You can't tell me Jesus is not the Son of God. I was dead for four days. I'm standing here talking to you right now. Me, I was dead for four days. Jesus brought me back to life. Not somebody else. He brought me back to life. He is the son of God. Jesus chose to give them that kind of testimony. I wonder what kind of testimony he's choosing to give you as you walk through what you're walking through. Secondly, it demonstrated a personal sacrifice on Jesus' account that glorifying the Father and demonstrating his own glory, it was costly for Jesus. He loved this family and he chose this family. He didn't wait for the stranger. He, he, he didn't wait with those who doubted him or didn't know him. No, he, he waited with those who had been following him, who trusted him. 
And though it was going to mean Jesus himself feeling the weight of the loss and experiencing the grief of a close friend's death, how much more would it cultivate trust in the life of Lazarus and Mary and Martha? How much more would they bring honor and glory to him because of what they'd walked through? We know from our passage that the Father's intent behind all of this was for Jesus to be glorified. Raising Lazarus accomplished that mission. How much glory would the Son receive by the deeply rooted devotion of those who already loved him and knowing him, continuing to affirm this and make him known to others around them? So how about you? And could it be that the things you're walking through, the things you're struggling with, the season of discomfort and friction or even loss and sorrow that you're walking through, could it be that it's for a reason? Because of what God wants to do in you, as he makes himself known, as he makes himself more valuable to you through the outworking of what he's doing in you, how he will grow your trust in him, your hope in him, your reliance upon him. And does that mean we'll never have questions about why things happen in our life? Of course not. I mean, did his friends just accept this decision? No, we saw the response. His friends were hurt. Mary was hurt. Martha was hurt. Both of them said something to the effect of, If only you had been here. Jesus, you could have changed this if only you had been here accusing him. If if you would have just come when we sent for you. We see here that Martha goes out to meet Jesus. And when Jesus comforts her by saying that Lazarus will rise again, she believes that Jesus is is using this this common form of consolation that, yeah, I know that in the last day he's going to rise again. Kind of like, you know, if you, if you ever go to a funeral and, you, and it's, it's hard to even know what to say to families and times of loss, we, we've all kind of experienced that, knowing the right thing to say. And I'm so sorry. If we have our phrases. I'm so sorry for your loss. Or, you know, I'm praying for you. I love you. Oh, they were the best person. You know, we have our go-to kind of things. Martha, Martha's thinking that's what Jesus is doing here. He has his go-to phrase. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're missing my point. My point is, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus is going to rise again because I am the resurrection and the life. Even if he dies, he will rise again. The people who, the, my followers, those who are in me. And Mary says something similar to Martha's statement in response. And Jesus gets emotional. He mourns even in spite of knowing what he's about to do. He mourns. He weeps. He's, he's moved. And that's really important for us today because though it may hurt and it cost you to live a life that is devoted to making much of God's glory, he will be with you in it. He will not turn his eyes away from it. He will turn toward your sorrow. He will sit with you in it. He will walk with you in it. We can often respond the way these ladies responded. We can allow our hearts to be hurt by God because we misunderstand or we don't see. We don't, we don't have the vantage point that God sees. And the Psalms are filled with psalm after psalm, song after song, poem after poem of people saying, Why me, God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The evil, they're, they're flourishing. The righteous, we're being put down. Why, God? Jesus himself goes and on the cross, comforts his own heart by quoting a psalm just like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God invites us to be honest with him. But the promise, as we're about to see, is that it won't always be this way. 
It won't be. God is going to redeem all things. He's going to make all things new. See, the thing about this passage is that Jesus didn't have the same kind of love that they talked about in, in verse 5. Je- Jesus didn't have the, the phileo love, that friendship love. In verse 5, is, is a very different word is used. He says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. It's a different word, Greek word. This verb is, uh, is, is from the word agape, agapeo, to love. And, and it means something different than friendship. It, it's actually the highest form of love. It's a word that describes God's love. And, and this form of love is an, is an active love. It's not passive. It's an active love that devotes yourself to what God prefers because he is love, like 1 John 4 tells us. I came across one Bible dictionary that that made this point. For the Christian to have this kind of love, it means that we actively prefer to live through Christ, embracing God's will, choosing his choices, and obeying them through his power. And this, this is how Jesus loved this family, and it's how he loves us. It's the best kind of love because it loves in light of God's ways and God's desires. Though there are moments in the short term that cause the working out of this love to be uncomfortable, it always results in God being honored and God being made much of and therefore us being satisfied. So we move on. That's our our first point today. Don't worry, our second one's really brief. (laughs) Uh, Our second one is this, that today uh, Jesus declares in this passage to Mary uh, that I am the resurrection, to Martha, that I am the resurrection of the life. It, I am the resurrection of the life. And that is the very root, is the very heart of our joy. There is a reason that the Father wanted to glorify the Son through this specific miracle. Jesus raising Lazarus was one of the most significant things he did in his whole entire ministry. And that's because of the relationship that, that is between sin and life and death. And that sin, the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, the earnings of sin is death. So Jesus undoing Lazarus' death proved that he has the external power over death, which talks about his, how, what kind of power he has over sin. He's able to exert his power over death because he is God. Jesus has power over sin and death. His declaration to Martha that he's the resurrection and the life was foreshadowing his own resurrection. And by performing this miracle, he's able to demonstrate external power over sin and death. But by actually resurrecting from the grave himself, Jesus demonstrated on a completely different level his power. He proved that not only does he have external power over sin and death, but he has total power complete power. Uh, he, he has the ultimate and total victory over sin, which is the actual cause of death. So though we easily, we easily believe the lie that we're still enslaved. You know, Mark talked about that a few minutes ago. What are the lies we believe? We still believe those lies. I'll always be this way. I'll always struggle with this. I'll always be, insert the blame. We believe that we're still enslaved, but sin no longer has power over us, not because of who we are, but because Jesus has total, complete victory and authority over sin and death. He exerted his might. He killed it by paying for the penalty of sin on the cross. He overcame its effects by rising again. Jesus has complete dominion and rule over all things, including sin and death. 
he personally vanquished sin and death, proving that he's victorious forever. And that's important. That's important for us today because without this kind of victory, ask the question, what hope is there in living a life that I'm advocating for? Why spend your life pouring it out, suffering for the glory of God if there's no hope on the other side of it? Yeah, and it sounds good. It sounds glamorous. I don't want to suffer like that if there's no hope. But if there's hope on the other side, eternal hope, my goodness, how glorious is it to live a life of hardship in the short term, making much of this great God, looking forward to the hope that is before us. No, this pursuit is full of joy. And that's because the more we make much of God's glory, the, the, the more we grow closer to him and the more we marvel at him. It, it's like, I don't know if you've ever had these moments where you, something unlocks in the scripture before your eyes and you're like, oh my goodness, that's who you are? Are you kidding me? And you begin to live in the glory of that. And you're like, man, things could not get any better until all of a sudden you turn a page and it's, are you kidding me? That's how good it is? That's who you are? And then that begins to be the rhythm of your life as you grow more and more in love with God and seeing how good and precious he is. And it is so delightful to grow closer and closer to him. There's nothing else like it. It's almost intoxicating to come more and more closer to God because we see that he's the only one who actually satisfies us. Jesus didn't just raise others from the dead. He proved just how powerful he is in his own resurrection. He proved it on Easter Sunday morning that not only does he have power over death, but that Jesus actually is the resurrection. He is the life. There is no other ultimate source of life other than him, and that's why we have joy. This is why we want to make much of his glory. We spend our lives, we pour out our lives because he is worth it. Our eyes are firmly fixed on who he is. And here's the hard part for us that we don't necessarily like. And this is our closing kind of application point today. Hope is most appreciated. It's most valued. It's most clung to in the hardest, most painful seasons. It's most prized in the hardest and most uncomfortable moments. Hope in the future is a nice and good thing on sunny days when there are no clouds when there's no difficulty, there's no friction, when everything is easy, hope is a beautiful thing. But in the darkest of nights, when things are broken, seemingly beyond repair, when you can't see what the next day is going to hold, when you don't even know if there is going to be a next day, that's when hope is most precious, when it feels like you're drowning in the depths of sorrow. When you're unsure of the next step to take, that is when hope is most valuable. We see the priceless worth of hope when it's darkest. And if that's where you are today, know that there is a bright and glorious hope ahead of you in Christ. In Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, know that things will not always be this way. The broken world that we live in will be redeemed and made new. We will live victoriously in a day where there is no separation from God, no sin, no broken relationships, no suffering or sorrow, no injustice. No, there is hope. And maybe you're not in that place today. 
Maybe you're on that mountaintop and the skies are sunny and the, there's no clouds, and we rejoice in that. We celebrate that God has taken you and put you in a moment like that. But I just want to say that if that's where you are, I want to put this on the table, that to remember this, file this away, because the valley is ahead. Inevitably, there are going to be valley moments in your life. Remember that Christ is our only hope of living a life, of pursuing the magnification of the glory of God. In this world of sin and brokenness, we will face pain and loss, but Christ remains sure. He remains true. He loves us with an agape love that is best and has God as its center. Jesus is the resurrection of the life. Therefore, there is hope and joy. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you're in that exact place I just described and you'd like prayer. In a moment, we're going to respond by singing, taking to the table, but there's also a space for, for prayer as well. We would count it an honor to pray with you over things in your life. Um, maybe you need healing, prayer for healing. There's stuff going on in your life, specific issues. We, it would be an absolute privilege to do that. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're walk, watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus. We want to have more conversations with you about that this afternoon. Um, If you've never made Jesus the rule of your life, we would simply say that Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live. He died a death bearing the wrath of God, the punishment for sin. And the Bible promises us that uh, as Jesus rose again from the grave, claiming victory, that if we'll trust in that and believe in that, then we can be made right with God. And that that wrath that we have stored up is that Jesus took that away from us, that he has forgiven us. The good news is that if we trust that, not just like we believe that in our minds, yeah, I believe there's a God, I believe that Jesus is. No, if we will with our lives believe that, then we're free to have fellowship with God, to be made right with God. I want to invite you simply to make things right between you and God today. And if that's you, can we talk after the service? Don't leave without, without talking about that, or, or please contact us. I'm here, Mark's here, there are others here who would like to talk to you about that. So this afternoon we close by responding in song and partaking in the table. And say on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he took the cup and he raised it and he said, this is is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul writes and tells us that as often as we take the bread and take the cup, that we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. And so this afternoon as we partake in this, it's because Jesus is the resurrection of the life that this meal is an encouragement to us. So as we partake in it, we eat this bread, we drink this wine with joy in our hearts and our minds firmly fixed on the hope of life that's to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for hope. Thank you that uh, the life you've called us to is a glorious one, that it may be costly, it may be painful, it may involve sacrifice, but that there is joy ahead of us, there is hope ahead of us. We can live now with joy Look as we look forward. Help us to remember these truths. I pray for those who may be walking through the valley in these days, who may be walking through heartache and sorrow. And Lord, I pray that you would lift their spirits. You would encourage them. You would help them to remember the truth, that they may preach the gospel to their hearts daily. 
thank you that you sit with us in sorrow. You walk with us through the valley. You promise not to turn away, but to look towards us in our despair. Lord, help us to continually cling to you in those days so that you may be made much of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.